Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. We got two people who've been making New Haven tick for quite a while now, a father-daughter team. We have Jimmy Breslin and Nora Ephron <laughs> on Dateline. Oh, wait, I got that wrong. Those guys are dead, right? We, we have their successors, Randall Beach and Natalie Beach, father-daughter team. Each of them has new books out. We're going to talk about that today. Randall wrote, Connecticut Characters, Profiles of Rascals and Renegades. It's a new collection of his columns for 40 years about interesting people in New Haven that he wrote for the New Haven Register for the Globe Peacock Press. And Natalie's breaking out with a new book from Hanover Square Press called Adult Drama and Other Essays. So I'm going to highly recommend that people buy both these books because I read them and enjoyed them a lot. And welcome to Dateline New Haven, Natalie. Welcome back, Randall. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Terry Gross. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. (laughs) Now, I obviously said that stuff on purpose because there's a tradition of essay writing and column writing that you're both continuing and updating in these books, right? So like Jimmy Breslin was known as the, at Kennedy's funeral, went and interviewed the grave digger and was the guy who talked to everyday people and the characters who made New York a city. And that was a genre... Everyone tried to be Jimmy Breslin. I grew up wanting to be Jimmy Breslin. And uh, newspapers always had columns like that. And they had reporters who kind of knew people around town and wrote the stories that people like to meet people. And you don't really see that much anymore, Randall, do you? That is really a sad thing. I wish that they, uh, when I left in 2020 um, to work on the Toad's Place book uh, and concentrate on book writing, I really wish they had found someone to replace me to, uh, to go out in the streets and to do those kinds of columns. But... I'm not just thinking about New Haven. Yeah. I mean, daily newspapers are sure. I mean, you do have like humans in New York right now. You yep. have websites where you get interesting people. So I guess the world changes in the way we get information and read changes. Do you think it's possible, Natalie? I mean, you're a younger person. Do you think maybe you read more stories like your dad wrote, only people don't depend on the print daily to publish them anymore? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm in L.A. and there is um, a great independent press um, called L.A. Taco where you – as a subscriber, you get uh, discounts at local taco places around town, and they they're covering like the police in a much more critical way than the the LA Times. Um, so it's an online site. Yes. If you don't mind getting close to the mic, oh, I almost apo- touching it. No worries. I apologize. So is LA Taco like um, is this reader supported nonprofit? Was it? My understand. I, I do not represent LA Taco. I'm just a I'm just a reader, but my. I, I believe that it's reader supported because you have Hellgate now in New York, yes. which is kind of like that. And you have, I, I um, just subscribed and a defe- racket in Minneapolis. Defector yeah. Media is mm-hmm. completely collectively owned. But you know, to your point about something like Humans of New York, I, I think that there is such a, a huge appetite from readers to read stories like what my my dad covered, and I think there's still an appetite of writers and reporters to cover it. It's more of a question of institutional support. And having to find new institutions or new models to support it. Exactly. And, yes. Um, and then uh, there's another tradition, which is the personal essay, which isn't just what happened to you, but why that matters in a broader way. And that's why I said Nora Ephron. I thought she was great at that art, you know, where she would write about Cosmo. She did like, you know, groundbreaking sort of women's liberation, but also commentary mm-hmm. type early 70s on before she became a screenwriter like you, you know, making movies like, um, what's that one about her ex-husband, uh, Carl Bernstein? Heartburn? Yeah, 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 yeah. But the idea was that sort of like something happened to you. She would talk about why she read Cosmo and how that made her feel about how that was against her feminist principles, but then also did a deep dive into uh, Gurley Brown and what the um, 
phenomenon really was about. And similarly, in your book, which has New Haven stories, New York stories, LA stories about, you know, I learned so much, for instance, about, one of my, I think my favorite essay might have been the one about low-rise jeans. Because you wrote about like sort of how you personally experienced, tyranny might be a strong word, but the pressures on women to conform to a certain style and your personal stories on the soccer team being in the dressing room. But then you really went deep into people I'd never heard of about designer. I had to write his name down because I don't remember anything anymore. But um, uh, Lee Alexander McQueen, right, mm-hmm. the designer. I loved hearing about him and about Abercrombie Fitz turning, making this turn to this like evil exploitive company and its crash and so how did you get into that kind of essay writing and why do you think it's valuable well i mean i partly got into it by reading a lot of Nora efron um but i you know i i grew up in a house where um my my dad was writing a version of personal essay in the form of his his weekly column where he talked about his life and you know sometimes what his uh, rascal daughters were up to and how did that feel by the way it, it was like you know just breathing air. It, I, I was born into Because my it. kids, like when my kids were babies, were, our dirty diapers were stolen by someone in Fairhaven when they were under one. I wrote about that. And after that, <laughs> I said, I'm not going to write about them because I felt like they wanted a privacy zone. But, but when you're a daily columnist, like all bets are off. That's sort yeah. of a little bit what Heartburn was about, right? That's like true. Carl you wrote about their whole life. Did you feel like a spy on your daughter? Well, I, 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 in terms of uh, writing about your family, I tried not to do it that often because I can get annoying and, and self-centered family center but i must say to this day people still stop me all over place not just new haven but the new haven area madison say i feel like i know your family i feel like i know your your daughters and how's natalie doing how's charlotte doing which is very touching and Uh, families matter yeah like as a writer you're supposed to write about what you know so you start with natalie's essay they all start with something she knows then she dives deep i don't think it was wrong to write about your family and clearly it struck a chord because their their affection and their tone about and they really want to know how's natalie doing (laughs) so how did you did you ever think at dinner when you were like mad because everyone's mad at their parents right when they're teenagers did you ever think like oh oh shit this is going to be like in the register No, I mean, I was just, I was more mad about, you know, you not buying me a pocket knife or something. Um, and, and less Why'd of, you want a pocket knife? I mean, I love to be handy and to be, I, I love to have the correct tools at any given moment, I guess. And why didn't you want a pocket knife? Well, I guess I was worried. I don't know how old she was, but I guess I was worried that she <laughs> might stab herself. Or <laughs> fair, fair, fair concern. Was just from, I was walking past a library recently <laughs> and I was reminded that I wanted this knife so badly you're like, you're, you'll cut your finger off. And then I was walking past the New Haven Public Library and I found a knife that was like sent from the trickster gods to me. And How I, old were you? I must have been 10. Oh my God. And I would not have got my, my daughter a knife at 10. No, he didn't. It was the New Haven gave it to me. I found it like just on the street. And what'd you do with the knife? I immediately cut myself with it. And, and, and Natalie, this wait, week, so did you feel like dad was right or no? <laughs> I mean, I... I was, or you just um, embarrassed? I was mortified how right they were, my parents, and so I like probably should have gotten stitches, but I just like wrapped up my finger and was like, no one will ever know. Well, what happened at dinner? You didn't have your finger out? Did you I like eat I... with the other hand? <laughs> I can't remember, but I was such a, a tomboy. I was always covered in Band-Aids. I maybe, uh, it, it didn't really stand out. Did you, so, I, I'm not sure I ever heard this story, <laughs> but, but, but it's interesting that just Natalie just was back in Philadelphia and she got a certain tattoo. I did get a pocket knife tattoo because I was sort of, just thinking about the story recently. Um, so you had no idea if she cut herself and she had a knife. This is news to me. <laughs> but you know, if all the like um, rebellious things, I'm pretty happy if my daughter were doing that. You know. Well, that's there are a lot worse things now <laughs> <laughs> than cutting yourself with a pocket You're talking to Natalie and Randall Beach here. They both have new books out. A New Haven 
generated or started writing Connecticut characters. Randall Beach's 40 years of columns from the New Haven Resistors about interesting people make New Haven tick an adult drama and other essays about Natalie Beach. Her first book this is not Randy's first book. Um, Al, how's that book doing, Natalie? Oh, I have, I have no idea. They're not telling me anything. But it's been extremely uh, validating to get to talk to people at book readings and, and hear from people who are responding nicely to, to what I wrote. Um, you know, you always have this fear, or at least I do, that if you write about yourself, you're going to come off as just completely selfish and narcissistic and up your own butt, and it's not going to mean anything to anyone outside of maybe your family who like put up your book in the refrigerator and but I really believe in the form that but if you write honestly about yourself that can matter to other people and speak you know in the in the in the specific lies the universal um that's what I learned from growing up in my parents house and you know reading seeing just firsthand how my dad writing about just the the nuts and bolts of family life could matter to a whole community and could speak to their lives. And that was my ambition as well. But it's, it's nice to, um, to get that validation that you pulled it off. It's interesting when you talk about narcissism because it is important to be able to have the freedom to write first person about your life because that's what you know best and people can relate to it. But with that freedom comes the responsibility to remember who your reader is and why you're writing about it. You're not writing about it to make yourself look good, you're writing about to tell a story that'll matter. Is that a fair I way to put it? I always had my ears to the ground and my antenna out, not just getting stories, but getting suggestions from readers on what would be a good person to write about. And I was always listening carefully to their feedback to know that, um, yes, this, this is what people are interested in rather than, oh, get, get off that, will you? We're tired of that. So you, yeah, have, to, you yeah. have to keep listening very carefully. I think it's a question of, what direction the energy and attention is going in you know am i looking at this big moment in the world and like to use an example you know the the desecration of reproductive rights and i'm going to take that huge thing and boil it down to a story about my own feelings or maybe i'm going to i'm going to try to go the opposite way and and start a story about my own feelings of um hopelessness and deciding to become a clinic escort and then using that as a jumping off point to go outwards. And that help. was interesting. I loved reading about you being on the front lines and, and dealing with obnoxious people <laughs> and helping people go and get abortions. Yeah. But like dad, you know, you, you would start from your own, you know, first person perspective, but you were then using it to explore a whole community and to uplift other people's stories. You weren't using other people's stories as a metaphor for your own life. Nat Natalie, your book began with, um, something a lot of people found out about. You had your viral moment. You were a ghostwriter for a friend from college named Caroline Calloway, who sort of had one of those fictional existence. She was a social media influencer. You looked up to her. You followed her other country, England, I guess, and you were helping her write her book that never got finished, and she took advantage of you, and then you outed her in an essay that went viral online, made you a little bit of a celebrity. That essay's in this book and a follow-up at the end. Is that what got you the book contract? Oh, definitely. I don't, you know, at least in the form that attention is a currency and so i i'm so so proud of the essays in that book that are about like the nittier grittier aspects of like estate sale work or clinic escorting that was great you go to all the estate sales yes. in la that was fun i never like i felt, I felt like i was going to estate sales with you and seeing what people left behind or what kind of characters ground <laughs> scrounge through the remains of someone else's life but, you know it's the classic thing of being a writer of trying to navigate art and commerce and and to strike when the iron is hot and um so what did caroline calloway say when you outed her 
what didn't she say? I mean, it sounded like she kind of said like she was respecting you, but was she, she hadn't done certain parts of it? What was like? Did she contact you directly? We had a brief conversation, but she has been um, so sort of um, erratic and cruel to me um, that there's no real point to me listening to anything she says anymore. Do you go back and look? I think you do in the book about why you allowed yourself to be in that position. Not that you blame a victim, but what? Do you think in the end, A, you got your revenge, it became your story, right? And you succeeded. It's not revenge in a bad way. You kind of, you could argue that this is a way of you becoming yourself and taking control of your own I mean, life revenge, and your own writing. reclamation, I don't know, maybe we're par parsing hairs. But what about what led her to be in a position where she led such a self-destructive and fictional life? I mean, she's pathetic in these, in these stories. I, I would, you know, I, I write about in the book spending so much time when we were working together asking myself that question of you know why is she like this how does she become this what where, what where is she going like who is this person and that's ultimately not for me to answer and i'm you know i'm pretty tired of of asking what's this thing about is you write in there about navigating your awareness of the shallowness of the viral information world we're in now and what's interesting is you came out of it something that's the polar opposite, which is the old-fashioned idea about thoughtful, in-depth essays that you sit down with a, between two covers on a couch at night and like read and think about. Do you feel like you're, you're sort of trying to make your deal with the devil? You sort of you got viral, <laughs> but then in the end you got to do the thing that mattered? Mm, I mean, your words, not mine. I, you know, I, I think um, writing for the internet is very fraught. It's a if things move very quickly and there's a huge expectation that writers turn things around really fast. Um, I was lucky that I was given a lot of time to write both that first essay and the book itself. Yeah. Um, you really pulled it off. I mean, these are really thoughtful pieces. Really appreciate that coming from you. Thank you. And uh, so, you know, Randall, we, we always had these deadlines and in fact, there used to be a day when daily newspapers came out several times a day. It wasn't like the internet with every hour, but there were editions and you didn't think about stories a lot. What got you in addition? Cause you always had a daily beat. You always did a really good job covering Daily Beats courts were your last one and you know such a thorough and accurate reporter what made you always want to make sure when you were doing daily newspaper reporting that you got to have a column every week where you talked about a person or an idea well I back I especially when I was covering the courts it was so sad what I was seeing weeping families uh, people unjustly accused or people justly accused the rule of the... People at their worst. You go to that courthouse, absolutely, especially the lower court. Absolutely. Just like, I would have to sometimes just stagger out of the courthouse after sentencings and you know, weeping families just go, go over to Willoughby's and get a cup of coffee and uh, try to regroup. So that was the darkness. So I thought, I want to bring light out. My father worked for Norman Vincent Peale. For positive thinking. Magazine. I remember he told you, right? He worked for No Guy matter Post how bad magazine. things get, just That was positive. his life working for Norman Vincent Peale. And uh, that's in my... In my DNA, and so I wanted to also bring humorous, um, compelling, evocative uh, portraits of people who aren't very well known, bring them out into the light. I would argue that's part of what makes us a community, or the people who aren't necessarily making the speeches or being in charge of things, but make it work every day and have color and care about things and uh, purpose. When I, when I got here in 1977, I immediately got... Tuned, tuned to that and said that they're just really innocent people. You walk around. Definitely what I fell in love with New Haven when I came in 78. Yeah. yeah. It, was definitely it what feels like a place that really allows you to be yourself. Yes. That's what I always think comes down to. Like, because first people say, because you grew up here in New Haven and 
I always feel like an idiot when people say, why well, I live in New Haven, when you say like halfway between Boston and New York, which isn't even halfway, but that doesn't make a place sound interesting. It really is about being yourself. You could be pursuing something that's off the beaten track. You still get to do it here and you get to be in the mix. Yeah, you I felt mean, that way growing up? Oh, yeah. I mean, I um, went to public school in New Haven my whole life, um, my whole educational career. And I would watch, you know, hear about my friends' experiences at suburban high schools or private schools. And I would you know, the clicks and the popularity and just like the social pressures. And I wrote about this in my book about low rise jeans and just being in New Haven. And like, the victory of like at your school across the, the prom queen or whatever her title was, it wasn't prom queen who did had the opposite body shape. It was yeah. almost like pre Lizzo, right? Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was a place that people were not bullying you. There was not hierarchies in the same way. I, I don't want to look at it through rose colored glasses. I'm sure that some people didn't have the best time at Wilbercross, you know, high school is hard, but it just was a much more accepting place of difference than I think a typical high school. I loved growing up here. This place made me who I am. That's awesome. And who you are is Natalie Beach. You have a new book out, Adult Drama and Other Essays, which is highly recommend, along with your dad and you doing events together, Connecticut Characters. Randall, do you have a book there? I do. Well, actually, I marked one up for you. Okay. You, so in addition to writing about people like Margaret Holloway, the... The uh, Shakespeare lady and people who own stores. You'd also write about when you'd go see someone giving a speech or something, which was a fun part of New Haven, right? We got to see our cultural icons come to New Haven. You always enjoyed that. You wrote about Hunter S. Thompson. And then you look back at having seen him twice when he died. And I just wonder if, if Randy's going to read a segment that I marked out, not the whole column, just two portions of it about when Hunter S. Thompson died and what you thought about it. Yeah, I wrote this in... Uh 2005 um and it was a look back at uh, a very interesting night unforgettable night i spent with hunter thompson when he was speaking at university of hartford i see him sitting on a stage grinning laughing swigging from his bottle of wild turkey firing off one-liners at his enemies this strangest strongest memory comes from a wonderfully bizarre night at the university of hartford in june 1981 when the guest lecturer was Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. Even then, at 42, he was coasting on his reputation as the gonzo journalist, a participatory writer who had revolutionized presidential campaign coverage with his savage, dead-on attacks on certain candidates. In his 1972 book, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, Thompson wrote that Senator Hubert Humphrey has always campaigned like a rat in heat. <laughs> Thompson also observed that President Richard M. Nixon represented that dark, venal, and incurably violent side of the American character. When I saw those words blown up in a poll quote from Rolling Stone magazine, I taped them to the wall of my college dormitory. This is the guy who made me want to go into journalism. He made it fun. He made it matter. A decade later, when Nixon was gone but Ronald Reagan had replaced him in the White House, I had a reporter's job at the New Haven Register, and I had a fun assignment. Covered the Thompson speech at the University of Hartford. When he came on stage dressed in a racing car jacket, he had not just the wild turkey, but also a glass of wine and a tin box containing freshly rolled joints of marijuana. He was there, he announced, to have fun. And we skip ahead a little bit in this after he spoke, or during his speech. Before he left the stage, he said, I've always felt like an outlaw, and I feel comfortable to go to my grave that way. And then some supreme serendipity came my way. I ducked into the bathroom and beheld, emerging from a stall, the gonzo man himself. Others gathered around him and we had a spontaneous BS session. 
Thompson pulled out one of his joints and passed it around our circle. Still, the students kept trying to resuscitate their savior. You've got to start writing about the political scene again, one of them said. Reagan's in the White House. We need you. Thompson shrugged and said, I'm not 20 years old anymore. I've been to the well, and the water is poison. Fast forward to April 1989, the Palace Theater, New Haven. Thompson's on stage again, drinking Chavez Regal, more rambling on his responses to the crowd, but still defiant and idealistic. Abby Hoffman, the 60s activist with a sense of fun, had died a week earlier, a suicide. Abby was always on the right side. He was funny, and he died with his boots on, in bed, Thompson said. You try that. When an 18-year-old asked Thompson if it was worth trying to make a difference in the 90s, Thompson quieted the hooting cynics in the audience. If you, you people realize how much fun it is to make a difference, he said, we ran several presidents out of the White House. Has it ever occurred to you that you could do that? It should occur to you, he said. If you're really angry about something, a lot of people will go with you. We've lost that sense of possibility. Because he felt even more strongly 16 years later, because it wasn't fun anymore, Thompson committed his last outlaw act and put a gun to his head. But let's remember what he told us as well as what he wrote. That's Randall Beach reading from Connecticut Characters Profiles of Rascals and Renegades. His book, and uh, coming out the same time as his daughter Natalie, has a new book, Adult Drama and Other Essays, and we're talking on WNHHFM Stateline, New Haven. I really loved how you ended that. I always found that an ending is the hardest thing to write in an article. Yeah, you really have to work on that uh, that tagline at the end. That's sometimes important. you don't have to work at it. Sometimes it's got to like come oh, yeah. to us like music. Sometimes it flows. Yeah, and sometimes you got to work at it. And you can't just say, we shall see. That's what Newsweek <laughs> always put at the end. <laughs> so that essay really made me think on a number of levels. First of all, it made me think like, I always loved reading Hunter Thompson growing up in my formative years, and I thought about his wild expertise with drugs and, you know, whatever else he did. So it was fun for you to read that. Your daughter now has a book where she has a lot of escapades like that. Is it fun for you to read about your daughter in those situations? Oh, oh absolutely. But, but, for real? Well, well there's some things that... I would never that, be able to read <laughs> there, there, there's, there's some things that, uh, that uh, are, are hard in terms of the content well, of her essays. Well, there's some stuff in there that would really hurt. Yeah, that yeah. There, hurt there are some things that um, happened to her that, I was, again, I was not aware of. And uh, it's, 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 it's troubling. And I mean... She's living so far away from us, and you, you can't know in her daily life what's happening. But I, I guess I do have this privilege most parents don't have. Of She writes about it, and I find out um, some of the truths, some of the things she goes through. So, so the other thing that made me, I really like the column because it provoked me to think about Hunter S. Thompson. And my view on him really took a 180 turn. I came to a much different conclusion from yours, which I don't think is necessarily the right conclusion. I thought he was great. You know, you're freeing up with the new journalism to write with narrative and more opinionated. You put your person in. And I think that's good. But as I said, I think comes a responsibility. So the fact that he made up stuff, he said Edward Muskie was taking a drug he wasn't taking and it ruined his campaign. He could have done a lot of good. I don't know how that was helpful. I question whether he ever ran a president out of office and the nihilism of saying they all suck, even though Hubert Humphrey, there's a new book coming out by Samuel Freeman, was kind of interesting about how the courage he had when Truman was president and moving the Democratic Party to embrace civil rights, to just say they all suck, they're all stupid, they're all sellout weenies. I just wonder, and whether facts don't matter. If you could say someone running for president takes a drug he doesn't take and then just ruin his candidate well, on I that think, basis. Well, I think facts do matter, and I certainly w would not uh, defend that. I think running several presidents out of office, I think he meant that... Uh, the Vietnam pro protesters compelled LBJ to just say, I'm yes. not, I'm, I'm not going to yes. do it anymore. I'm, I'm leaving. That's and, true. And, and Nixon went. So, right. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that. I agree that, like, 
holding from the outside people in power to account is really important and that the tools of the new journalism are definitely a way to do it. I'm thinking specifically about Thompson. I'm wondering if he's the precursor of a nihilistic, fact-averse movement in our country that, in fact, is MAGA-Trumpism. Well, um, I, I think it goes a little too far. I think the important thing that, matter, that matters is uh, he engaged a lot of people, including myself, in, in politics and in journalism and uh, calling out the bad guys. Fair point. Something, I, I mean, Fair to- point. tossing it to you guys, I mean, he was such like sort of a the man um he was so ego driven you know i think making things up it was because he was putting his own work ahead of the truth or of politics or my question is as some people who have worked in journalism forever in like as members of teams like do you think that he maybe was making it more about himself than he should have a thousand percent but i think it's good to be able to use first person i think both of you do it perfectly i've never seen an instance where I didn't think that you folks enhanced the story you're writing about something other than yourself. And I'm just friendly, you know, disagreeing. I think Thompson became sort of the evil. He got way out of hand. So talented, so smart, and maybe just did too many drugs. But, you know, being held up as a hero, and I did. He was one of my heroes, without a doubt. And yeah, likewise. I've, re- I've reassessed that. It's sad. He became a caricature of himself. The but dr- the musky the thing, I can't forgive him. I can't forgive him for the musky thing. No, I don't, I don't defend uh, making things up. That's... Once a reader learns that you've made something up, you, you lose your credibility. They won't believe anything you write. Well, but I, he did shake us up into writing more creatively and challenging power, no doubt about he did it. That. And we can be happy that he, he left this earth before Instagram showed up. Oh, <laughs> my God. So, Natalie, you know, in your book, as we said, there are a lot of personal stories. Some are painful, some are funny, some are wild. And I think you do such a great job in making them be more than about that. So instead of talking, like you have one thing about the 6-12-18-24 game I never heard of. It was hilarious. Your story is very fun and great. So well told about like how a person, you took the guy game from the frats and, and did it your way, which I love that reclamation about. You, you have donuts, orgasms, miles, and beers, and you get to pick any order of those to do them in. And I thought this essay was a perfect example of why I think this book is so successful. I was wondering if you could read a section that's not about your story, which I highly recommend people read, um, but about... The person who popularized it named Dave Portnoy, if you don't mind, I, I, I um, blocked off a few sections. This is an essay from Natalie's new book, Adult Drama and Other Essays, about the 6-12-18-24 frat game that was popularized by Dave Portnoy. Um, my pleasure. I love this essay. Um, this is my favorite one that I wrote, and um, not a lot of people bring it up. So I It's really, my second after Low Rise. That's why I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> would you like me to read this whole section or just that paragraph? I marked off two sections. That goes to the end, and then it skips. You go back to him. Gotcha. And if you've never heard about Dave Portnoy, listen up. It's interesting. Portnoy's complaint. The records are lost to time, but our best guess is that the 612-1824 challenge began as a bonding exercise for collegiate cross-country teams, the loneliness of the long-distance runner and all that. To this day, you can compete in the challenge at Pink Lightning, the runner's camp at Burning Man. And this is where the challenge remained, in locker rooms, running subreddits, a desert outside Reno, until 2015, when Dave Portnoy, the face of Barstool Sports, live-streamed his attempt. Portnoy represents everything I hate. He is a frat boy Troy McClure, using his platform to voice support for torture, Trump, the harassment of journalists, vehicular manslaughter, union busting, Tom Brady, a blog post titled, Could Serena Williams Rape You? He's a 44-year-old millionaire pizza blogger who built an empire on the concept that Saturdays aren't for women. Now, there are those who contend that I'm not describing Dave Portnoy at all, but rather his alter ego, El Presidente. 
quote, not the president of a country, but instead a mindset, says Tucker Carlson, another man who insists we respect the distinction between an authoritarian screen persona and when the broadcast ends, the well-mannered professional simply cashing the checks. As far as I can gather, the Portnoy mindset consists of a day drinker's apathy unless a competition is involved, in which case the necessity of winning can't be overstated. And so when Portnoy announced with his fans that he would attempt the 612-1824 challenge, he meant it. Portnoy opted for six miles, 12 beers, and a ludicrous 18 jerk-offs and 24 donuts. This is objectively... <laughs> 24 a- donuts is the one I kick. <laughs> this is objectively a... Tr- <laughs> I ate 12 donuts. And do you think, anyone, does, you think anyone does munchkins just to cheat? Dave Portnoy did munchkins to you cheat. see, I knew it. What, what yeah. a show. Right, yeah, so like, I don't even know what we're debating. It's like, you, you, you're such a cheater. Um, but anyway, this is objectively a chump strategy, but proving the naysayers wrong is what revs Portnoy's engines. I may even dedicate four jerk-offs to all my doubters and haters, he declared at the start. That's what gets me excited. That's what gets my dick hard in the morning. He began at night, knocking out six miles on a couple of chocolate-glazed donuts. I'm going to settle in for an extreme jerk-off session, he announced to the thousands of stoolies following along. Hashtag GoPresGo started trending. I am horrified, tweeted his now ex-wife. <laughs> I doubt that Portnoy has an Elaine in his life, and Elaine was my very good friend. Someone who sits with him when he's sad, assures him that he's beautiful when no one else will. To me, Portnoy possesses all the sex appeal of a zit with teeth. On some level, he must know this. Barstool Sports is not the project of a man on joyful terms with a face in the mirror, and truth be told, neither is my body of work. I understand what Portnoy was chasing that day. He attempted the 612-1824 challenge. It wasn't to show up the doubters and haters, quite the opposite. The challenge has always existed as a form of male bonding, a permission structure that allows men to cheer on each other's ejaculations as they would a favorite sports team. For 24 hours, Portnoy could request that his readership care deeply about his penis, that they loyally track its rise and fall and give his genitals the rarest of all gifts, which is unconditional male attention. Don't we all desire an audience? Randy Beats, there's a Yiddish word, word, Cavell. Are you familiar with it? No. It's a very specific word. It's about the pride you take in the accomplishments of your children. Wow. Which is sort of the greatest kind of pride. When you hear something that is that good and that it was written by your daughter, how does that feel? Immensely proud. And uh, just uh, affectionate, and um, just keep it going. Yes. I mean, you and your daughter, I mean, your wife, Jennifer Kaylin Beach, are both very successful journalists. You've done so much good work over more than 40 years, and now you have the superstar daughter who writes so well. I can't imagine anything that would feel, and she's successful. I can't I mean, imagine anything that it's, could it's feel such better a than It's such a legacy, and uh, it's such a, a, a happy handing down. So, Natalie, you're doing book events around the country, but you're doing a bunch with your dad around mm-hmm. here. Tell me about that. Oh, it's been a dream. I, I, when uh, sort of the powers that be decided when our, our books were coming out, but, like we couldn't believe it. We were so excited. Um, and it's, it's been partly what's been so fun about it is I, we do book events and some of my younger friends show up who maybe are fans who knew about uh, in, Instagram drama, but then old hippies from new haven come for you and it's a, <laughs> it's a very fun mixed crowd the paul, the paul basses of the world <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's next for you randall you, you're putting this book what do you do next um well i i people think oh you're retired how's retirement going but i always tell them i continue to write columns every month for connecticut magazine which is a lot yeah, of fun. i see those they're more good. of a statewide focus and local but still a lot of characters in them um and every week I write uh, 
if I feel like it every week, uh, on substack.com, um, I write an essay, just well, how would I feel about what's happening this week. Um, it doesn't have to be local. It can be, uh, like tomorrow, I'm probably going to write about uh, my appreciation of uh, postal workers and just what it's like to be a postal worker in this heat, and there's more theft and more tax on them. Um, so uh, I've got about 350 subscribers uh, it's all free to them um and natalie actually suggested it to me about a year ago and i said i kind of missed that that feedback from the readers and said well why don't you do something on Substack?" i'd never heard of it and i love it the gift is returned natalie what are you up to next oh well, i'm really looking forward to not writing about myself anymore for <laughs> for a while um, yeah you could save up 10 years and yeah, then we'll exactly. have one, yeah um actually this is relevant to you you all i'm um my sister and I are working on a TV show about a high school newspaper. Oh, fun. And we're going to set it in New Haven. Oh. And um, I'm really looking forward to rolling up my sleeves and getting into that once the strike is over, of course. I will be on the picket lines until then. That sounds really fun. Are they going to make a movie or a TV series about you and Caroline? That's what they say. but um, Who's going to play you? <laughs> no, that has not been determined yet, and it's certainly not up to me. <laughs> but I'm just along for the ride with that one. <laughs> we'll enjoy the ride. Because you earned it. Oh, and thanks, you too, Paul. Randy Beach, a great career that continues in New Haven journalism. Thank you, Paul. Going back to the, um, the before the Nixon administration, after the Nixon, Mr. Ford administration. <laughs> <laughs> 1977. Yeah. Well, Rand, the books are Connecticut Characters, Profiles of Rascals and Renegades by Randall Beach, Adult Drama and Other Essays by Natalie Beach, a great father and son, a father and daughter <laughs> team. Excuse me. What is gender? What is gender? It was part of the book. <laughs> yes. And I enjoyed that part, too. Thanks to uh, Harry Dross for working the controls. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.